Good morning, everybody. Today we're going to continue on in our uh, look through our Constitution uh, and the eight or nine, I think there's actually nine in total, uh, things, our statement of faith. If you remember last week, we talked about the Word of God. And, you know, that's the, it's so good that we started there that whoever wrote that section of the Constitution, our Constitution said, um, we're going to start right there because everything else we're going to talk about comes out of that. If you don't believe, and I said this last week, but I'll reiterate it. If you don't believe that one, you cannot believe the rest of them. Because if you do not believe that the, God, that the, the Bible is God's inspired word without error in its theological uh, things. Remember we talked about last week, there are some grammatical errors in the Bible that just come from translation, translating into different languages. If you believe that, then you can believe the rest of it. But if you don't believe that God's word is without error and the inspired word of God, if you don't believe that about the Bible, then you, why do you believe the rest of them? Are you picking and choosing which ones are the errors? It's not the way it works. So we started there because the, that's the base, that's the foundation for everywhere else we're going, everywhere else we're going to talk about over these next couple of months, that's where we're starting. Today's is a little bit more um, complicated and ambiguous. I expect you guys possibly to leave with some questions that, quite frankly, I cannot answer, and neither can you. Today we are talking about the Trinity. It is one of the few things in Scripture that, uh, well, no, that's not true. It is one of the many things in Scripture that we struggle to understand because we have finite minds and we have finite language. The idea of God, singular, God, having three different persons, all equal, yet all acting in different ways, makes no sense to us. And we can talk about, you know, I think mom in children's church uses the egg, I think, as the normal, the normal one, right? There's three parts to an egg, but it's all an egg, the white, the shell, and the, and the yolk, right? You can use water. Water exists in three different parts, you know, gas, liquid, and, and solid. All of our analogies will fall apart if you dive into them too hard because there is nothing in the whole of creation that is like the triune God. So, you might leave with a couple of questions. How did that happen? I don't know. Why is it like that? I, I don't know. But we can see that Scripture teaches it. The other thing I want to point out before we read the Scripture verses here. Unlike a lot of things in Scripture, there is nowhere in the Bible that I know of that comes out and says, God exists in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We get the idea of the doctrine of the Trinity from pulling from a plethora of different verses in Scripture, throughout Scripture. There are two major ways to form doctrine. One, you can have a section of a minimum of five verses in a row that talk about the same thing. Or, you can have a minimum of five or so verses that come from other spots throughout Scripture. Let me warn you. Do not take one verse out of context and make a doctrine out of it. It doesn't work that way. The Bible has to show it in multiple places or in one place for a long time for it to be considered doctrine. Don't fall into that pit of, well, the Bible says this right here, so I'm not going to read anywhere else. This must be it. You very well might be misinterpreting it, including myself. So I just want to point out those few things before we jump into it. But let's jump into it here. 
We're going to start in Genesis 1, 26, then we're going to hop over to 1 John 5, 6, 8. Uh, and if you look at your note sheets, there's a bunch of verses written on there. Uh, we're going to be jumping around this book today because, like I said, there's no one passage that we can use to fully defend the Trinity. So, first up, Genesis 1, chapter 26, or chapter 26, verse 26. There are 26 chapters in, in Genesis, so we could go there, but it won't do what we need it to do. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. We'll talk about that in a minute. Flip with me, if you will, over to 1 John chapter 5. Verses 6 through 8. I'll give you a second if you want to flip there. First John is quite small. All three of John's letters are small. So uh, uh, we'll give you a second to grab there. First John chapter 5. And of course it's up there. Verses 6 through 8. We're going from the beginning to the end of the Bible here. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. And there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. All right, let's talk about this. First up in our constitutions, let's read our definition or description of the Trinity. And that should be up there uh, as well. Go to the next slide there. Perfect. The Trinity. We believe that there is one living and true God, eternally existing in three persons, that these are equal in every divine perfection, and that they execute distinct but harmonious offices in the work of creation, providence, and redemption. I don't know about you, but every once in a while, I like to read things that were written a while ago because they use words that we would probably never use today, like harmonious and providence. It's good stuff. Let's talk about that real quick, and then we're going to talk about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So number one on your note sheets, number one, the Trinity, the Trinity. We read in that verse that we saw in Genesis chapter one, let us make man in our image. They are plural forms that show his majesty, plural. Now that verse begins, then God said, it is not begin, then the gods said, it is singular, then God, capital G-O-D, God said, let us make man in our image. This is not a grammatical error, this is what was said. I want to point something out to show you how new information, and not new information, but new revelation from the Holy Spirit throughout time can change the way that previous scriptures were read. I talked to a friend of mine who is, um, first off, just generally way smarter than I am, but secondly, especially so when it comes to ancient Jewish tradition and stuff like that. And I said, hey, what was the Jewish idea of the Trinity? And his response to me was, the idea that God had three persons would have been heretical to them, inconceivable to them. They read this differently than we did, than we do today. Why? We have the whole of Scripture to work with. They did not. And God had not revealed himself yet as the Son or truly as the Holy Spirit yet. 
He was, had only truly revealed himself as God the Father to them at that point. Throughout time, he would reveal himself in his other two persons. But let us make man in our image. We've got that plurality there that shows that there was more than one. I want to take a moment here and say something. Be very careful what terminology you use to describe the Trinity. There are not three parts to God. There are not three people to God. There are three persons. That's the only word that I use. To say something else is to imply that God is somehow separate. That God is not one. Yet we know that he is. Again, we have limitations with our language. Which is why it's important that we stick to very specific words. So if I may impart one thing upon you at this point. If you're going to talk about the Trinity, talk about the different persons of the Trinity. I thought about this as I was doing my last preparations last night and I went to an outsider it might seem like God's a little schizophrenic. Three people, three persons existing in one. He's not schizophrenic but he decided this is the way it was going to go. We flip over to 1 John and it talks about the water and the blood and the spirit. Now at a first glance this would seem to indicate that one of them's the water, one of them's the blood and then of course the spirit is the spirit. That's not true. That scripture passage is referring to Jesus. His baptism is the water, and his death and subsequent resurrection is the blood to prove he is the Messiah, who is the Son of God, who is God. The Spirit testifies because the Spirit is truth. And elsewhere in scripture we read that God is the truth. See how it kind of fits together like that, how it comes together? You've got to know scripture to fit those things together. The other thing that it talks about is that, that it points to is this baptism. And the baptism is the only place that I know of in scripture off the top of my head where all three persons of the Trinity are present and accounted for at one time on earth. Jesus, of course, in the form of man being baptized. The Holy Spirit descending in the form of a dove. And God the Father who says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. It harkens back to that. So that's the Trinity. Now let's talk about the three persons. And one, show their roles, but also two, give a defense of their divinity. Because there are certain sects that believe different things. For instance, Muslims, and I'm not saying Muslims are Christians by any way, and I'm going to explain that, because Muslims believe in Jesus Christ, the prophet, not God. Jews believe in the Messiah. They even believe that Jesus was a good preacher and a prophet. But not the divine God. There are some that don't believe Jesus is the divine God. So we have to give evidence for that. But before we talk about him, let's talk about the Father. Number two on your note sheets there, the Father. If you read in your, uh, oh, here, let me read that first. God the Father, it's up there. We believe in God the Father, an infinite personal spirit, perfect in holiness, wisdom, power, and love. We believe that he concerns himself mercifully in the affairs of humankind, that he hears and answers prayer, and that he saves us from sin and death, all who come to him through Jesus 
Christ. God the Father is the big dog. He's the one who is seated on the throne in heaven. We'll talk about later Christ is at his right hand. God the Father is the one seated on the throne. And when you read through scripture, when you see Lord, all capitals, capitalized L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The word for that is Yahweh. The only name God gives himself, that he calls himself. Right? When Moses is at the burning bush and he's like, hey, who should I tell him is coming? Yahweh. Tell them the I am. That's what he says to call himself. The I am. Side note, that is personally my favorite name for God in all of scripture. There are some that are great, you know, Emmanuel, God with us, man, that's incredible. You know, Jehovah Jireh, all these other ones, Jehovah Nisi, it's so good. I like Yahweh because it encapsulates everything. I am the I am. Nothing exists without me. Everything exists because of me. And nothing happens without my approval, without me allowing it. I am God. There's no room for, well, maybe this. No, no. I am God. It's one of the reasons that Jesus caused such a stir with his answer to uh, uh, Pilate, I believe it was, when he says, do you believe you're the son of God? And he says, I am. He used a very specific term. That's why everybody got in such a tizzy, because he was claiming to be God. We'll talk about that in a minute. So, when you're reading through scripture and you see that, capital, all capitalized Lord, it is talking about God the Father. If you go to the New Testament and you see the word Lord, and it's the capital L and the lowercase, it's usually referring to Jesus. The name Yahweh is not used there in that specific instance because you are not, what they were doing was not calling him Yahweh, they were calling him Lord as in Master. That's the difference that we see. And there's a bunch of places, Psalm 99.9 talks about that, but there's a bunch of places in Scripture. As well, I'm going to flip, you don't have to, but I'm going to flip over to Romans uh, chapter 5 real quick, because I'd like to read those verses to you. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 9. It reads, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. This is again talking about God the Father. God to Son, and then Son to God. God the Father said, They need grace. I'll give it to them to be saved from my wrath. Most people do not deny the divinity of God the Father. Why do we call him the Father as well? Jesus tells us to, right? In the Lord's Prayer. Pray to him like this, our Father. That's why we refer to him as God the Father. Also because we know that Christ is his only begotten Son. God always is referred to as a man in Scripture. Now he's not a man in the idea that we think of. He does not have an XY chromosome. But he always refers to himself as he or him himself that makes him Father. We're going to jump to Christ the Son because uh, most of us are going to be okay with the Father. Number two, or number three, excuse me, on our note sheets there, the Son. We believe in Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son, conceived by the Holy Spirit. We believe in his virgin birth, sinless life, miracles, and teachings. We believe in his substitutionary atoning death, bodily resurrection, ascension into heaven, perpetual intercession for his people, and personal, visible return to earth. Let's talk about him. We read in John chapter 1, right? The Word 
becomes flesh. The Word being God becomes flesh. We just read there, and we talked about right when he calls himself God, I am, when he's taught before the pilot. Christ himself claims to be God. He's doing these miracles, he's doing these things. We read elsewhere, he is the realization of the law to prove his divinity. He came to make the law obsolete for you and me. Not the idea of the law, but the exact law, you must do this, you have to do this, you have to do this. It's obsolete. Wiped out because he died on a cross for you and for me. Because he rose from the dead. Here's a huge defense of God. Harken back to Genesis chapter 1. What's Genesis 1-1? Who knows Genesis 1-1? Good. It sounded a lot like this to the people watching at home. In the beginning... In the beginning, who created the heavens and the earth? God. Flip with me to Colossians chapter 1, if you would. Colossians is after Philippians. Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to look at verse 16. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For by... Thi- I'll wait till you're there, because I want to ask a question. Is everybody that's going to flip there there? Okay. For by him all things were... What? Created. Who was the creator? Therefore, whoever is the creator is God. Now, if I go up, we see that we're talking about who in this section of Scripture? Jesus. Let's put it all together. If Jesus, we're told by Paul here, Jesus is the one who created everything, and not only that, the rest of the verse talks about how he also sustains everything. We know that God is the creator. They're all together. Christ was the creator. Christ was the person of the Godhood, the Godhead, excuse me, that actually did the creating. We don't think about that often. We attribute that to God the Father. And it's okay because they're all, the, they're all equal. They're all the same God anyway. But Scripture is pretty clear. God the Son is the creator and sustainer of the universe. Therefore, he must be God as well. His role is different from God the Father's, right? God the Father sits on the throne. He's the one who mediates out the grace and the mercy and also the wrath and the justice. God the Son sits at the right hand. We read here, he sustains everything. He didn't just create it, he sustains it. And he's the Savior and the mediator. Those are his two, now, his two big roles in the Godhead. He mediates for you and I to God the Father on our behalf. And he came to be the Savior for us. Their roles are different, like we read about. Equally important, but different. Same God, two persons, different roles that they fulfill. Let's talk about number four here, lastly. And definitely, not least, the Spirit. We believe in the Holy Spirit who came to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment and to regenerate, sanctify, and empower all who believe in Jesus Christ. We believe that the Holy Spirit indwells every believer in Christ and that he is an abiding helper, teacher, and guide. Let's talk about him real quick. His primary roles. He's the helper. Before we do that, 
I want to talk one other thing about the Spirit that's not on your note sheet there. Has the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, always been a permanent fixture in a believer's life? In a New Testament believer's life? Yes. What about in an Old Testament believer's life? No. I want to point this out because it's a difference between then and now. One of the classic examples of the Holy Spirit leaving somebody is Saul, king before David. When the Spirit was on him, he was this incredible warrior and king and leader. And what happened near the end of his life? The Bible says the Spirit left him and he became a maniac, a madman. When David himself writes in the Psalms, take not your spirit from me, did he truly have to fear that the Spirit of God would leave him? Yes, he did. Today, you do not have to. That was one of the things that Christ did on the cross, was make it so that you are now the temple. And when you accept the God, when you accept Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit comes into you and he never leaves because his role is different now in a permanent believer's life. Let me rephrase that. His role is not different, but he now does it permanently in a believer's life. Before, he would go where the Father sent him, i.e. Saul. And when Saul decides to turn his back on God, God said, okay, time to go. And the Holy Spirit left. As a Christian, a New Testament believer, the Spirit never leaves you. Always there to fulfill his primary roles. Let's talk about him. He's a helper. That means, and I, I included a bunch of stuff under helper. He's guide. He gives wisdom. He gives strength. He gives counsel. All of those things. Wonderful counselor, all that stuff, right? That's the Holy Spirit. Working in the life of a believer. Working in the life of a believer. When you pray for wisdom... God uses the Holy Spirit to give it to you. When you pray for strength or for that measure of grace that you need in that moment, God uses the Holy Spirit to give it to you. It is why an unbeliever has no access to those things because they don't have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is kind of your channel for those things. He renews you. He's the one who renews spirit and mind and body, gives you that strength to keep going. He empowers the saints. Uh-oh, Acts 1.8. Isn't that where they all start speaking in tongues? Yes, it is. Read the rest of Acts. Anytime a believer does anything, it is the Holy Spirit who empowers them to do it. Peter and John, on the way to the temple that day, that heal that man and give him Christ, the Holy Spirit empowered them to do that. Not just the empowering to heal, but the wisdom to know who they were supposed to do it for. And the boldness to do it. Anytime a believer, both in the New Testament era, the early church era, and now, when God asks you to do something, you are not doing it alone because the Holy Spirit is there with you, empowering you to do exactly what he's told you to do. Not more, not less, exactly what he has told you to do. We'll make it simple. The Holy Spirit said, I need you to go lift those five hay bales right now. He would give you the power to do all five. He would not give you the power to do six because you weren't supposed to. 
It's a stupid example, but it puts it in perspective for us. You probably couldn't even lift four because you were supposed to lift five. Then let's talk about the last one because the last one is the one that gets misunderstood the most. The Holy Spirit is our convictor, but it's not conviction for conviction's sake. If you feel convicted and there's nothing pointing you towards how to become more Christ-like, that is not the Holy Spirit convicting you. The Holy Spirit only convicts to drive you towards righteousness. That's it. He doesn't convict you and leave you feeling guilty in the gutter somewhere. That's not him. Might be you, and it might be Satan. It's not him. You know it's conviction from the Holy Spirit when he convicts you and you go, I've got to be better and grow and become more Christ-like. He convicts to righteousness. Always remember that Satan likes to take the things that God does and twist them. Everything that Satan does, most things, I'll do a, I'll do a little covering just in case there's one. Most things that Satan does is a twisting of what God already is doing. Convicted towards righteousness is the Holy Spirit. Every time. Convicted and leaving you feeling guilty and worthless is not him. Because the Bible tells you you are not worthless with Christ. Lastly here, and it's not on your note sheets. There is one key way that we as believers involve all three members Persons, see I just did it. Persons of the Trinity in one moment. Does anybody know what it is? There are two key ways. See, this is why I keep him around. Baptism, yes, because we baptize in the name of who? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. That's another defense of the, tr the, of the divinity of all three. What is the way I was thinking of? Does anybody know? Not communion. Prayer. You pray to who? God who? The Father. In the name of who? God the Son. Through the power of who? The Holy Spirit. You're praying to the one who's on the throne, God the Father. In the name of the one who mediates for you at the right hand of God. Through the power and guidance of the one member who, of the person. See, now I've said it again of the person who lives in you, the Holy Spirit. Most of us will only be baptized once or twice in our lives. Communion was a good one. I had a thought of that. See, you guys here, you help me out. I like it. But you should be praying multiple times a day, every day. You should be interacting with all three persons of the Trinity every day in exactly the roles they have set out for themselves. Why did they choose to do it this way? I, I, I don't know. Why did God choose to make himself into three persons? I don't know. He could have done it as just one. He decided not to. Will we ever understand it? Probably not. I don't even think we'll truly get it when we get to heaven. But we can see that scripture points to it. We can see the defense of the, of the divinity of all three. And we see throughout scripture how they work harmoniously together 
to achieve the goal of your salvation and your sanctification. You've got to get away from God the Father's wrath somehow. So God the Son did it. But he knew we couldn't be left alone. So God the Holy Spirit was sent. Would you pray with me? Father, I would just want to thank you that we have the Trinity. You could have done it all as one, and yeah, maybe it'd been a little bit simpler, but maybe not. But you decided it's going to be the Trinity. Here we go. I thank you that you are seated on the throne, that you rule and you reign, that you mediate out grace and mercy and love and wrath and justice and holiness. I thank you, Christ, that you sit next to him, that you mediate on my behalf, and that you saved me from my sins. And I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are in me, in us now, guiding us, empowering us, convicting us when we need it. Father, it is in the name of Christ, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen and amen.